biggest legal threats to assisted reproductive technology right now. Maybe it isn't what you're seeing in the news most commonly. Maybe it's something else. I don't know. I am more than happy to have you on the show if you're from Resolve or ASRM or any of the advocacy groups to talk about what's happening with regard to personhood. I'm more than happy to have that on. But I had Igor Brusel back on the show to talk about a different threat to reproductive technology and reproductive therapy right now. You might remember Igor from coming on the show two years ago. He is an embryologist turned attorney. He practices in Illinois and Texas. And we talk about not just this change of what anonymity is able to be provided, but what's also being demanded from donors and where Igor thinks that there is exposure for providers, for agencies, and where the discourse might be lopsided in the legislation that's coming down the pipeline. So we talk about future legislation as what's current, as well as some common mistakes that uh, entities might make or areas where they're exposed. And I think you ought to hear him out on this. It sounds to me like the ASRM should be paying attention to this episode. Sounds to me like for the Fertility Providers Alliance should be paying attention to this episode because there might be some big time threats coming down the pipeline to donors, to uh, the entire process of third-party reproduction that either limit its capacity, drive the cost up, reduce donors, just make it really hard for you to be able to treat patients. So I hope that you enjoy this episode with Igor Brusel. And again, if you want to have a subject matter expert come on to talk about some of the other current legislation, please send them my way. Happy to have them on the show. Enjoy this one with Igor. Mr. Brusel, or for those of you that really defend the doctorate of jurisprudence and those professionals deserving that title, Dr. Brusel. In either event, Igor, welcome back to Inside Reproductive Health. Thanks very much. Um, You just touched upon um, some rules of professional conduct. Yes, you can call me doctor so long as uh, you identify that I'm a doctor of jurisprudence so that it doesn't confuse. Do doctorates of philosophy have to do the same thing? Um, I'm not sure. Do doctors of chiropractic have to do the same thing? I don't know the rules, but uh, I maybe they should be uniform. In either event, you're not here to talk about that. You are here to talk about what you see as some, uh, some I don't know if, if radical change is the right word, but some very important things happening in the world of third-party reproduction, specifically with regard to uh, I, I think you, you, one of the titles that you recommended for uh, was you know, the death of anonymity, or do you know do we do we have to give the concept of anonymity a burial service? It was something like that. So I want to uh, let you talk about that. But the last time you were on the show was a hit. Your uh, your legal uh, background and your embryology background give you uh, insight into this field that very few other people could have, um, and so it it was popular. Uh, but I am in, and and I have, I have followed with my resolution to have more people from the lab on the show. 
So we have more lab listeners probably than when you were last on. But why don't we start with why you felt this concept of, of, of anonymity and it's going away was so important to talk about? Well, first of all, my proposed title was Donor Anonymity Guy in 60 Seconds. Um, and I think it's important to um, pay attention to what goes on, um, not just in, the, in, in, in a pitcher dish or you know, around the incubator or in the incubator, but things that surround it and legal framework and legal, gui- you know, legal guidelines and uh, standards of care. Um, all of these things um, are relevant, um, particularly if you are a licensed healthcare provider, regardless of what license you hold, or if you're a business uh, involved in um, procurement and use of uh, donor gametes. Um, Donor anonymity um, is um, a concept that pretty much exists only as a legal theory anymore. Um, In reality, um, donor anonymity, I, I would even go as far as say it never existed. Because what's anonymous? You know, you if if you want to make an, an anonymous uh, monetary donation, the recipient doesn't know who you are. Um, donor sperm and donor eggs, the gamete bank knows exactly who you are. So in that sense, you're not an anonymous person. Um, what it was um, and is becoming um, more less and less a reality is that the gamete procurement facility, let's say um, a sperm bank, uh, was contractually obligated not to disclose your identity to a third party. Has that part changed? So so I think many people are, are now familiar with the concept that there's 23andMe, there's social media, there's DNA testing uh, in across many different platforms. So anonymous might not be the best nomenclature. Sometimes people use non-disclosed, but is that, has that done anything to change what agencies or, or if, if clinics are providing the gametes, what they're responsible for in terms of, should they not even say that they're not, that they're contractually obligated not to disclose? Has that specific part changed? Yes, um, it's changing. Um, it has changed in several states where um, donors um, have now a statutory, which is by law, by state law, right to um, either disclose their identity at the time they start donating or not to disclose. Um, Washington, California um, have that option written in the law. Colorado that recently passed a law uh, was, as far as I know, the third state that passed a donor anonymity law, or at least a law that affects donor anonymity. Um, Colorado does not give um, donors any option um, to remain uh, unknown. Um, They have to live with the knowledge that their identity will be disclosed at some point in time. And the law has, Colorado law has uh, different provisions when the disclosure must occur or may occur, who may request, um, so on and so forth. And there are different uh, duties imposed um, by that law on clinics, 
um, gamete banks, as they're called, or um, um, gamete matching um, entities. So yes, um, depending on where you are, you are now legally required to disclose to um, your gamete donor that their identity will be disclosed. Um, so yes, the, the landscape is changing and it's important for the industry to keep track of that and advocate for um, the industry's um, interests. And those interests are, how do we comply uh, with all the regulations that are popping up here and there, and they're all different. Um, so if you don't keep track, if you don't advocate for your position, you will end up with um, a bunch of different laws in different states, and could be 50, um, and you know the the logistical nightmare of complying with very different fifty laws um, would be uh, fairly um, onerous, I think. The regulations that are popping up do they are they across the board for assisted reproductive technology or particularly third party or uh, are there specific laws popping up having to do with obligations to either uh, uh, preserve anonymity or um, counsel uh, to, to get informed consent that there isn't anonymity? Again, um, each state by constitution is uh, permitted to um, regulate healthcare in a way that the state uh, legislators deem appropriate. So every set of legislators comes up with uh, what they feel or someone makes them believe that they feel is necessary. So in Washington, for example, the law applies to um, um, certain types of entities that are licensed in that state. Um, similarly in California. Um, Colorado reaches outside of Colorado. Believe it or not, um, if you are a fertility clinic that provides, uh, that um, runs a cycle for residents or a resident of Colorado using donor gametes, Colorado Department of Health will come and inspect you when the law uh, becomes effective, if I'm not mistaken, in 2025. Um, and the legislature, or that is to say that they're they're they are claiming they have with their law they have the right to enforce that. So that that's the claim. Yes, um, legal minds can disagree, um, and that's good. It means that they're thinking um, on that particular principle. Do you think legal minds will disagree? Do you think Idaho will say no? You're not coming. You're not no someone from the Colorado Department of, of Health isn't coming here. Do you suspect that legal minds will disagree if there are states saying that we do have jurisdiction in other states? Is that a, is that a Supreme Court just case just begging to be heard? Well, it depends on who is willing to fight the fight and uh, how far that party is willing to, to take the fight. It also depends on whether the um, um, next level court is obligated to take the case. Uh, so there are many wrinkles here. But um, yeah, legal minds uh, will disagree unless they are um, on something. Um, it's, um, it's an interesting concept. But just to put this in perspective, um, if no one challenges um, the uh, ability to, um, the ability of the Colorado licensing agency or Colorado State Department to reach out and inspect um, a clinic 
pick a state, New York. Um, if you don't challenge that, here is what might happen. And I'm speaking not from my embryology background, but strictly from healthcare law background. Many physicians that I've dealt with outside of the reproductive um, arena don't realize how far the licensing board can go in its investigations. Uh, the licensing board or any licensing board has very wide authority and licensing boards can come after a person who is not even licensed in that state or the licensing board of your state can come after the licensee for violating a law even of another state. It's all possible. I represented um, a physician who dealt with that situation. So it's not just the gamete banks or the agencies or the um, so-called legal entities. It's real people who need to um, understand um, where the law is, is going and um, what to do with it. So is it almost always that the agency of enforcement is the State Department of Health? Are they sometimes other agencies within a state? Well, it depends on each piece of legislation, which will define what department of that respective state will have the uh, enforcement powers. Um, in Colorado, I believe it's Department of Health and Environment. Um, don't quote me on that, but let's assume for the sake. Well, of well, what other agencies are we seeing that aren't the Department of Health when you see when you're seeing either a, a suit brought forth or an investigation brought forth? What other agencies? Are, are doing that sometimes from states that aren't the Department of Health, and, and what areas do they typically have under their purview? In my experience, um, I have only dealt with the licensing board um, either responding to a complaint or investigating um, or starting an investigation based on internal information, meaning there is no formal complaint. But donor anonymity and data about donors doesn't strictly fall under specific laws that address that issue. There are plenty of laws that control how identifying information is collected, stored, uh, disclosed. Um, biometric laws um, are popping up left and right. Um, a capture of donors' uh, facial features, like a photograph, may trigger um, state's uh, biometric um, privacy act. And um, in, in my experience, uh, attorney generals um, have the right to enforce um, those uh, particular provisions. So it may be that uh, storing uh, donor photographs in a particular state might trigger um, liability um, under the local biometric privacy act, something that I think few um, physicians um, or entities uh, think about, but it's there. So there are plenty of areas where collection of information, disclosure, the rights of the donors um, will, will matter. Um, it's an evolving area, not necessarily intimately connected to reproductive um, technologies. So what do entities have to do to protect themselves? Well, um, you know what lawyers uh, do in these circumstances they suggest they paint the worst possible picture that doesn't allow you to sleep for nights and then 
uh, and then put forth an expensive solution toward compliance that limits delivering operations in some way? Is that, is that what you were suggesting? Because that's what I think of. Not quite. Um, if I were um, a practice, an IVF practice, a donor agency or a donor matching agency, I would do a comprehensive um, risk analysis, not necessarily strictly from the standpoint of what is my duty, um, what do I have to do to collect the information to whom I have to disclose, but what other laws might be triggered if I maintain this information? Is there a conflict of laws? If one law says you have to disclose donor information and the other law says you can't disclose donor's facial features like a photograph without a specific consent of the donor, well, you need to have some uh, serious analysis where you fall. I mean, you may not be subject to multiple laws because you fall under the exception or the facial features are specifically exempt. Uh, the type of features that you maintain are exempt. but you can't just disregard that blimp on your legal radar. Um, you have to follow up. And what needs to be kept in mind is that the push to remove donor anonymity, completely eviscerated, is coming from the donor-conceived community, as far as I can tell. It's the biggest voice um, in terms of additional regulation of the um, IVF and ART industry with regard to donor gametes. And if you read their positions and convictions, it's not just the donor identity that they seek out, or at least they claim that they have a right to have. They want medical information, not just of the donor, but about the donor and about the donor includes family members. And I think time has come for the industry to sit down and address the elephant in the room. And the elephant in the room is that number one, the entire conversation is driven by one party that has very one-sided goals. And if you really think hard without all of the political filters of political correctness, what it would take to achieve those goals. You'd realize that in reality, you'd have to pick up novel 1984 and add a chapter for you know, Department of Reproduction because the most vocal community that's driving this conversation uh, insists that children have a right to know not just the identity of their biological parents, but their medical history, their social history, their, uh, their mental health history, and those histories of, of several relatives. New York State is now considering a law, it's in one of the committees, um, that would require um, certain players in the IVF industry to collect um, information from the donor about the relatives, three degrees of um, um, consanguinity. So when you're saying that this is entirely lopsided, uh, the conversation is on on one end. You're talking about from the donor conceived community. 
and I'm not making any judgments on whether their claims are valid or, um, or not. Um, I'm taking them as they are. Um, it's, I, I'm not an ethicist, um, so I'm not going to make any judgment. But if I take those claims and I think, what would it take? For example, they very frequently complain that um, um, I, uh, clinics or gamut banks uh, or agencies don't verify the information that donors provide. My question is, and it's a serious question, um, how far do we want to go? There has to be some legal framework. It's it's one thing to um, ask for uh, you know a driver's license. Okay, how do you verify that? To what length do you have to go? I mean, do you have to register with E-Verify? You may not be able to um, because you may not qualify as a gamut bank uh, to register. Um, I have it on good authority that getting a fake driver's license uh, is not such a such an such an issue. Um, college kids more than one um, have told me, yeah, it takes about half an hour, and we can go get some beer. So if if every step of the way, the question is, how do we verify? How do we follow up? You're going to run into a situation that would require a full-on dictatorial regime. For example. Um, States require um, gamete banks to um, collect um, donor family history. New York goes as far as requiring names of doctors. Again, it's not a past law, it's a proposed bill. Names of doctors that the donor has seen in the preceding five years. All right, fine. So you've got a list. Dr. Jones, Dr. This, Dr. Brussel, you name it. How do you verify that? What if there is another physician whom the donor didn't disclose? So then the question is, okay, the donor lied. Uh, what do you do with that? Do you sue the donor for fraudulent misrepresentation? I mean, you have to literally take this to an extreme to, and, and, and it's. Well, I guess that's going in the contracts, right? It's going in the contract with the donor that, that, they, that everything that they say is true. And then I suppose that it's going in the contract with the intended parent, the intended parent, that uh, we had a, the donor sign the contract that everything they said is true, but we cannot, but there's limits to how far we can verify what they've said is true. Is, is that going in both contracts? It's not just contracts. Um, contracts are good. You can write up uh, what seems like a very solid contract the question is, are you willing to enforce it? In other words, you can have all the promises made by the donor given under oath, uh, but what do you do if the donor breaches the contract? Are you willing to go and sue the donor? I mean, you have to look at the entire process to come up with a reasonable solution, not just follow what one side is promoting, and then you end up with laws that are... Uh, you just go, well, how do you comply with that? Uh, I'll, I'll ask it a different way. Is the contract, is it wise to, or necessary for the contract with the recipient, the intended parent to, to declare the lim the limits to the enforcement? I have to be, uh, I, again, if I were someone um, like a sperm bank, let's just use the word sperm bank because it's for some reason pops up in my head. Far sooner than any other term. If I run a sperm bank, 
um, I would have to tell my customers who buy donor sperm, we can't verify um, what the donor is telling us. And at this point, you can't because there are legal limits to what you can compel the donor to do. You can't just waltz into a doctor's office and say, uh, look, uh, the dad of our donor um, is being seen here. We'd like his medical history because the donor would not cooperate. You just can't do it. Um, and um, there are other developments that, in my judgment, would drive the decision-making process of if I were the sperm bank. For example, um, there are two very relevant court decisions, one in Oregon where um, a donor sued the sperm bank um, on uh, and the claim of fraud was the only one surviving. So the court permitted the claim of fraud to go forward. And um, the um, multiple lawsuits um, in Georgia filed by recipient parents alleging that the sperm bank did not verify certain information that the donor provided. And what those two cases tell me is that the courts are doing what frankly is a very logical conclusion. They're treating donors and recipient parents as consumers. And they're applying very uh, generic um, fraudulent misrepresentation legal theories to make um, sperm banks liable. Um, so if you tell someone, this is what we do, but we don't actually in reality, you could be liable. If you don't fully disclose what you do or what you have to, you also could be liable. So you can, this coin certainly has two sides. On the one hand, you have to tell the donor, in my judgment, that the donor information will be disclosed um, to someone pursuant to such and such law. You can't, I think it's insufficient just to say, well, it's all confidential, uh, but we might have to disclose it pursuant to law. Well, it doesn't tell the donor anything. Um, on the other hand, you have to be truthful with the recipient uh, parents and say, we are limited in our ability to verify. Um, and um, at some point, someone would have to take responsibility, but it's a separate conversation, I guess, to what extent a sperm bank would have to go to verify. Again, I just don't know if there is, if there is a good answer because um, there are privacy laws that are, they would have to be completely demolished. Um, there are laws regarding access to donors' information or history that would have to be demolished. So sperm banks would have to be given unfettered access to whatever they feel they need to find in order to uh, satisfy this one-sided drive um, for disclosure of um, information. So it, it's, um, it's, it's a tough situation. Is your bigger concern at this time is that entities are too exposed within the current framework or is your biggest concern of the legislation that may pass that may make it untenable to either operate or to comply? Both. Frankly, both. Um, so 
let's just assume for the sake of their argument, no state has passed any laws regarding mandatory disclosure of donor information or mandatory collection or mandatory um, storage and maintenance um, forever. Let's assume those laws don't exist. You still have, um, in my opinion, legal responsibility to be honest with everyone involved. Um, just a couple of days ago, when I was preparing for, for the um, podcast, I opened up um, a couple of websites um, that belong to very uh, notable sperm banks, and I looked at the description of services for um, donor sperm. And one bank says it's 100% confidential, just flat out, 100% confidential. Well, if you're splitting legal hairs, and what you mean by 100% confidential is that we, the sperm bank, will not tell the parents, uh, well, maybe, but not in the current client. Um, you just, I wouldn't make such a statement. Um, then I looked at another one, similar commitments to ironclad anonymity. I mean, we, it, it, no way, no how, nowhere. And then at the bottom, well, recipients may look you up online. All right. Um, again, if I were uh, driving the bus, um, I would take greater precautions. I would be um, um, open. With Does advertising like that present a liability even if the contracts are airtight? So if advertising such as what you just described is contrary to what's in the contract, can the person argue, well, I didn't have consent because unlike this 18-page document that I was supposed to read through and sign everything, it's right here, right on the homepage. It says we have ironclad anonymity. So how much does or does not advertising like that jeopardize a, a really well-drafted agreement? I'll give you a uh, typical answer you'll hear from most lawyers. It depends. <laughs> and it depends on several things. Number one, Statements that people make or entities make um, are subject to a tort legal liability theory, which is different from contract liability. There's a completely different legal theories. You can pursue tort claims and contract claims at the same time. There are different recoveries. It's, it's a very complicated and convoluted um, conversation. But to your point, yes, you can get in trouble for advertising one thing even though your contract is bulletproof. If, and, and I'm using you know, um, Dr. Evil's bulletproof. Um, contracts are not bulletproof. Um, that's, that's just a sad reality. Um, so yes, you can, absolutely. Um, With regard to entities, who do you think is generally more exposed right now? Does it tend to be providers or does it tend to be agencies? Well, I, I think it depends on who has the greatest um, um, interaction with the donor, who um, communicates with the donor more than the other party. So let's uh, assume for the sake of their argument, you are a sperm bank in uh, what, my state of Texas, okay? And you collect sperm here, you process it, you deal with local um, donors, then you ship it to a clinic in my former state, Illinois. All right. So the Illinois clinic 
most likely will have no interaction with the door. Probably not. So their responsibilities, their duties and risks probably will be less, but it doesn't mean that someone in Illinois wouldn't say, oh, it's donor sperm, it's 100% confidential. There is no way um, you know, this could come out. Um, well, it could. It, it took me literally five minutes yesterday to find out how I can plug in a photograph and find matching or similar images on multiple um, social media websites. Thing, life has changed. Uh, 25, 20 years ago, um, most people didn't have um, substantial social media presence. Today, if you're a professional and you don't have Facebook, um, LinkedIn, uh, Instagram, or some other outlet, uh, your marketing specialist will tell you you're a dinosaur. So, yeah, the risks are everywhere, which brings me to um, my suggestion that you have to sit down and uh, conduct a professional and thorough um, analysis of, of your risks and take it from there. Uh, the answer will depend on your risk tolerance or risk aversion. We're talking a lot about consent in this episode and what might threaten informed consent. I'm not an attorney, but you should talk to your attorney about what informed consent is provided by engaged MD in a way that isn't when you just slide a stack of papers to someone. Is it? Are you better protected by having someone sign a stack of papers with a lot of language that they don't understand? Or are you better protected when it comes to informed consent when the recipient has gone through video modules that they sign off on each one, they take a quiz? Who's the more informed party? in that situation. Again, I'm not a lawyer, but why don't you talk to your lawyer about this so that you can get on Engaged MD if you're now in the minority of practices that isn't using Engaged MD. Often I talk about it for workflow and, and for reducing burden to staff. It does all of those things too. Also, it might protect you a lot more and remove some liabilities. So you want to look into that Go to engagedmd.com slash Griffin. You got to spell my name right. It's Griffin. My name has never been Griffin. It's never been Griffin. It's engagedmd.com slash Griffin. So you can get a free workflow consult and ask them about some of these things. Ask them about uh, this particular phase with informed consent. Use this as an opportunity to get a little bit of free insight as to what other practices are doing. Go to engagedmd.com slash Griffin, get your free consult. Do clinics and that is said, do providers and agencies tend to have the same, do they tend to make the same mistakes? Do they tend to uh, be exposed to the same like the, the very same risk, is there some differentiation between the two or does that not matter because it has to do with uh, the, the intended parent and the, uh, the donor? I think the risks are similar. Uh, they may you know, risk for someone who constantly interacts with the donor to follow up on a red flag in the donor's history. 
that risk would be the greatest for, for the sperm bank that deals with the donor compared to uh, a fertility clinic that's just using the donor. Um, and speaking of risks of the uh, New York uh, proposed legislation would require um, a physician, medical director, to issue a written certification that he or she basically certifies whatever the physician certifies. Um, so it's, um, it's, 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 it's a different level of liability um, when you have to do something in writing pursuant to, to state law. Um, so the risks are going to be there, but they may not be as great for one party as opposed to the other. Um, so that would be my, my answer, um, if it makes any sense. My audience is going to be, at least a part of my audience, is going to be ticked off that I haven't covered the implications of you know, the potential Roe versus Wade overturn and then what's happening in, in state houses often related to that. Um, and that I, that I brought you on to discuss a different reproductive legal issue first. I know that's going to tick a couple people off. I'm, I'm one man people. I, I've got a show and it's part of what I do to run my business like everybody else. I, I'll get to it if you send me some experts and we could even and possibly have Igor back on to talk about that. But I want to ask you, Igor, do you view what's happening or has the potential what's happening in state houses right now with regard to personhood possibly connected to the potential Roe versus Wade overturn uh, as a bigger threat to assisted reproductive technology right now? Or do you consider this concept of anonymity a bigger threat? Um, hmm. I never thought of it that way. I think anonymity would probably be a far more acute issue for me if I were, you know, to decide which one is which. Um, personhood bills um, have a history of not being passed. Um, abortion debate involves termination of an existing pregnancy, whereas the IVF industry does not deal with an existing pregnancy. It deals with a pregnancy that doesn't exist. They would say, well, but people are very worried that laws that you know talk about embryo as a person then put REIs in jeopardy of well, are you are you you can't cryo freeze people, you can't discard people, and so that puts all of IVF at risk. Well, it I, I certainly understand the worry that people have. I think um, I I wouldn't be. That's my personal opinion. I'm not that much concerned at this point, having seen um, the legislation that's already in place. Um, I, I can certainly imagine arguments if, uh, for example, um, a, you know, the state law declares uh, a legal person from the time of conception. Uh, as an embryologist, I'm thinking, okay, when does that start? I can't see it. You know, when is it? Is it 10 minutes after I did ICSI? Is it uh, an hour? At which point, if I discarded, um, the injected oocyte, did I just violate the law or not? It's just um, to take it to to an extreme, um, but I'm not that much concerned. Um, but it, it, 
anytime legislators start writing things, um, you have to be concerned no matter what they write. Um, and I am personally concerned uh, about just about anything. Um, when I was a law student, I was um, involved in educating Illinois legislators on the issue of genetic uh, privacy because there was a desire to create a statewide uh, health information exchange. And there were different laws covering different types of um, medical information, genetic, um, mental health, um, everything else that made that project uh, questionable. And I did a presentation for, for the legislators. One was yawning. The other one picked up the phone, uh, cell phone and walked out during the presentation. The other two um, looked as if, um, you know, they were just uh, ready to, uh, to walk out and expressed absolutely, at least their facial expression was, uh, who cares? Um, so you're, you're certainly, I think, you're going to run into legislators who write things for the sake of writing. Um, as sad as it is, um, plenty of laws that I've read on many subjects, you wonder who wrote it. Um, so that's, that's where we are, unfortunately. And it's not just limited to um, abortion or IVF or anything else. But I don't hear this this topic coming from the reproductive health advocacy group nearly as much the topic of anonymity and uh the obligations therein uh i i'm not saying they're not talking about it and this could be my own limitations but i'm but i'm not hearing i hear lots of concern and not just from this most recent uh su supreme court concern but from ever since I've been in the field, the advocacy has always has had to do more with at least when, when we're talking about uh, reactive advocacy, reactive ag advocacy, or perhaps protective advocacy is a better word. Um, you know, having to do with uh, legislation that touches abortion, uh, I don't really hear people talking about making sure that we're educating legislators about. Uh, the actual constraints of anonymity and and what's involved in delivering are we missing something as a field across the board i don't think certainly you're not missing anything i have it on board authority that you are um thoroughly plugged in on the industry um and i think you just nailed it um on the head uh, the snail um i looked at the um minutes of the um, meeting held in Colorado when when the Colorado Act um, was was being debated, and there were some attorneys, local attorneys, very well known in the ART space, who, according to the minutes, testified on their own behalf. There were donor conceived persons who testified on behalf of the entire donor conceived community. There were ethics law professors who testified in favor of the law. I did not see a name that said Dr. Such and Such testified on behalf of um, name, you know, a physician interest group or um, such and such person on behalf of name and interest group um, on behalf of sperm banks. Um, I, there may have been one sperm bank um, manager or an owner, I don't recall, but the 
I, I think you are onto something very important. Um, there is not much discourse uh, on this issue. There's not much debate. And I don't know if there is some reluctance to even voice um, an opinion that doesn't jive with the one-sided narrative for fear that it might be, what are the terms that are um, common these days? A microaggression or something that you're insensitive or you're ignoring the fundamental rights of donor-conceived persons. Again, I'm not making any judgments. If they feel they have a right, um, let's have a discussion on how that right could be um, implemented, for lack of a better word. What I would like to, frankly, now that we are discussing it, I wonder why only donor-conceived persons should have that right. Let's assume they, they should. I mean, the, the donor-conceived, uh, I just read it half an hour ago, when I slightly more, uh, just to confirm my, um, uh, my suspicion. Um, one of the very vocal groups says that donor-conceived persons have a fundamental right to know the identity and the medical history of their parents. Why only donor-conceived? I mean, it, it may sound like a silly question to you, as most of us, well, it's my dad, I know who he is. No, you don't. You assume that you do. But chances are, at least I wasn't present when the gametes were in, in the intimate vicinity. Um, I wasn't aware of, of my birth. I, for all I know, I could be adopted. My parents never told me. Um, but with the same token, the donor conceived um, persons, as they term themselves, are getting statutory rights to demand medical history of people they don't know, donors, and their relatives. I don't have such a right. I can't just compel my parents, my parent, one is deceased, to disclose their medical history. I can't do it. Uh, my, it, it's, it, it's a personal issue to me. Uh, my father passed away, and I'm thinking, and an illness that had genetic component. I'd like to know what it is. I can't do anything about it. Because he signed an authorization basically saying, don't disclose to anyone. End of story. So if children have a right to know everything about their biological parents, including their medical history and that of generations of relatives, why should that be limited to only donor-conceived? Just, just, just a question for a discussion. I know it wasn't um, the topic of the conversation, but in my mind, it is uh, um, intimately, for lack of a better word, no, no pun intended, linked to this entire um, conversation that we're having. Well, there is not, you're right, there is not much conversation. Uh, I don't, I really don't think so. And so for all of the advocacy folks, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to cover the issues that you want and you can send your experts on the show, but I also suggest you might consider this issue more because I can, I can see uh, broad reaching implications reg uh, regarding anonymity. And I just don't hear us talking about that nearly as much. Uh, you you've said Igor, that you're not the ethicist. And I think that's probably why you're a good attorney is that you're very dispassionate and you look at the law and, uh, and I, but in, in what you're seeing is that it, it's, it's lopsided right now. And, and here are the risks from, uh, 
the discussion being lopsided at the moment. So if you're not the ethicist, who should be arguing the other side of what's reasonable? So it's, it's reasonable to want certain things as, uh, as a donor-conceived person. It's reasonable to want things as a donor. It's reasonable to want things as a provider. So uh, all, all things are a negotiation. At least they should be. When they get bent to one party gets a preferential treatment, uh, then we've we've lost uh, what I perceive to be a law-following republic. But who makes though? Like who helps that negotiation along? And 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 what parties? And what do parties need to do to advocate for themselves? They need to advocate for themselves. You just answered your question. Um, the parties know exactly who they are. The parties know exactly. Meaning the agencies, the providers, the. The clinics, uh, the agencies, the uh, gamete banks. Well, here's the problem. Well, but is there any alliance for donors? Probably not, right? Maybe I'm making an assumption, but. Uh, I'm right. I'm not aware. And, um, you know, I, I've put myself in a position of a donor um, many times mentally as, as a mental exercise. Um, and I asked myself, would I, as a donor, want to know what exactly are my rights? I mean, it, it, several states now permit donors to be a disclosed donor, meaning they will sign a piece of paper that says, I permit you, Sperm Bank, to tell the recipient couple who I am. Fabulous. But those laws don't allow the donor to go back. And pull that authorization away. I have a fundamental disagreement with that approach. Uh, fundamental, but again, it's an ethical question. Um, so donors, if they say, I don't want to be disclosed, they can later say, fine, I agree to be disclosed. But once you say, yeah, disclose, you can't go back and say, no, don't. Um, I have not seen anyone advocating on behalf of the donors. And I see a very um, good reason why donors may not want to have um, any right taken away from them irrevocably, like a right not to be disclosed. But if donors, but donors aren't going to be advocating for themselves because so many of them don't want to disclose their identity. So then, who's I, I get? I get the providers, the agencies, but they have their own needs to to advocate for right so is, is this naturally going to be an imbalanced debate most likely yes unless some entity some person some organization i don't know what it might look like uh, decides to advocate on behalf of the donors and um, have a real discussion there's no discussion there are demands and responses to demands on the part of uh, several legislators uh, legislatures and um, kind of a reflex-like uh, conversation within the IVF uh, community vis-a-vis, um, -vis, uh, you know, a recommendation or an ethics opinion from, from ASRM. That's basically as, as far as we, as we go. I haven't seen a discussion. I'd love, I'd, I'd pay any money for a town hall discussion with donor-conceived persons on the scene and um, players in the ART um, community 
a discussion that basically says, fine, we recognize you have those interests. What would it take to satisfy your demands? Tell us exactly what is it that you would think matches all of your demands and have a discussion. And, and, and there will be, I am guessing, uh, dozens of issues um, that no party can, can implement in the current legal environment and framework unless you have a department of reproduction that controls every ovulation and every ejaculation and knows what goes on and um, we're becoming a dictatorial um, state in terms of reproduction. What involvement has the ASRM had in this legal advocacy up to this point? I think it would be inappropriate of me to um, speak for ASRM. Um, I can only see what I can see published. I, I'm not privy to any discussions. Um, so um, I just probably a week ago or even less, um, the latest issue of Fertility and Sterility published the latest ethics opinion um, on issues related to donor anonymity. And there is a suggestion that donors should be provided legal counsel, legal consultation before they donate. Um, you know what, I am ready to say, at least to myself, they should be represented by an attorney. I mean, it, we are at a point where in third party reproduction, everyone is represented by an attorney, but the donors. So there is recognition that legal rights and obligations are involved and just about everyone is represented. Um, but the donors, I, I didn't see any. Well, that would really cut down on donors, wouldn't it? Especially if they had to pay their own, own legal expenses, because then the question is, well, who pays the legal? Does the, do the intended parents pay the legal expense? Wouldn't there be a conflict? Does, do the provider, does the agency, is there a conflict there? And, and that's why I think what we do not have currently is a serious discussion where uncomfortable issues are brought up and discussed. Um, I do realize that we'll live um, you know, in a, in a time where Play-Doh and petting zoos and uh, safe spaces are becoming commonplace um, because everyone is offended uh, by whatever you say. I'm sure there will be people who will be livid uh, when they hear um, this podcast if you decide to post it um, because they're, they would feel that I offended them. Well, if you, human interaction invariably leads to one side being offended and there will be the F offendor and offendee in legal terms. I just made that up. Uh, but if, we, if we're not prepared to have a serious discussion, then we're going to have with a patchwork of laws, one in this state, one in the other state, that will drive up the costs, that will create um, uncertain risks for everyone involved. And um, the community pushing for more rights will still remain unsatisfied because you can't enforce they can't compel donors to do what they're asked 
to um, to do. You, you you just can't. There is no legal mechanism to compel a donor to disclose all of the physicians that he or she had seen, to name all of their relatives, to uh, bring verified medical records of all the relatives. There is no way to get to a point that the donor community wants to get to. So, as far as you know, is there any decrease? I should know this, but I don't know this. I've got my finger on the pulse of you know transfers, retrievals, egg freezes, that type of thing. But I don't know if there's any decrease in donors. In uh, it doesn't seem to me that there is one because our clients are whenever when they engage us, it's almost always to get more matches, to get more recipients. So they, they seem to be stocked on the donor front for both oocytes and sperm. Uh, but as far as you can tell, is any of this risk to donors leading to a decrease in donors or has that not happened yet? Um, the answer is, I don't know. Um, the first part pertains to how many donors there were and how many there are now. In order for me to answer that question, I would have to have all of the confidential info of every sperm bank or every mm -hmm. in front of me so that I could add things up um, and compare them in real time. I just don't have that. Um, what will happen in the future? I don't have the crystal ball. Um, there are certainly arguments that fewer donors uh, would be willing to uh, donate. And there are arguments that if there is a decrease, it's not going to be a substantial decrease. Um, I, I just don't have the crystal ball. I, I don't know. Um, my, and I'm speaking simply as a member of the community. I observe that current generation does not value privacy as much as the prior generations. So it may be that the donors of today simply just don't care. Huh. You can find me on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, you know, fine. I doesn't bother me. So it may come to a point where donors couldn't care less and there isn't going to be any change. But my expectation is that if all of these laws are complied with, number one, um, the cost of donor sperm vial or eggs will go up by how much? I don't know. Um, but the same Colorado, you have to, if, if you're conducting business in Colorado, if you're licensed in Colorado, according to that law, could be a $500 license. Plus they want to inspect. So you need to have, they require a uh, compliance plan and remedial plan. So somebody would have to create that that's an additional cost. Anytime someone does anything within their organization, there's a cost attached. So it's sperm is not cheap today. It could be a thousand dollars a vial plus 300 for shipping plus um, incidentals, blah, blah, blah. You're looking at a you know $2,000 um, vial. Um, if you have to spend more money on compliance, um, guess what? The vial is not going to be cheaper. So I'm, I want to let you conclude with uh, some parting advice. Oh, well, 
an attorney, let me do the disclaimer for you. You can do it again if you want. It's not legal advice. Uh, I guess some insight as to what people should think about doing next for what they should be looking into, I guess, suggestions as to what they should be looking into as far as how they should protect themselves. We do have some agency owners that listen to the show, but it's more REI practice owners. Well, if I were any one of the um, persons or entities you just mentioned, I would look at the current laws in my state and find out what other states have laws that are relevant. And um, I would certainly retain an attorney who is um, experienced in healthcare and privacy, because as I mentioned at the onset, there could be laws that are not specifically IVF or ART or reproduction related that might trigger um, certain legal concerns. And um, if I'm a physician and I'm speaking f- based on my experience outside of um, ART um, arena uh, sphere, I would not take lightly um, all of these risks and responsibilities, particularly when it comes to being truthful with whoever you are dealing with. Um, because I've defended physicians and dentists and um, other not licensed um, healthcare providers, um, the boards will come out. And if a board takes disciplinary action in one state, it is required by federal law to upload that information into the national database. And the licensing board in a different state where the physician is licensed will most likely conduct periodic reviews of that database. And if that ding from a different state pops up, guess what? Your state's licensing board now gets involved. So is it a remote possibility? It's it's a possibility. It's a very real possibility. And in my experience, physicians don't even know how far the board can go and how deep the board can dig. Um, That's an issue. Uh, if, If I am running a sperm bank or an egg bank, well, sure. I, as a businessman or a businesswoman or or a business, I'd like to know what the rules of engagement are. And, and if there are fifty rules, then I I will have to make a business decision which states I will operate and which I won't, or I will have to make a business decision with regard to donor screening and pricing. And um, anyone who is involved in this process should do a legal self reflection. Preferably, as self-serving as it may sound, with a licensed professional. Um, so that's, I think, is my advice on that. And um, a conversation needs to be needs to be um, maintained. It, it, it can't be a one-sided train um, where one party um, is, you know, at, at the helm of the locomotive and drags the train and lays the tracks in the direction that it wants. Um, That train will soon run you over if you don't. Well, this is a good episode for the ASRM to listen to. It's a good episode for the Fertility Providers Alliance to listen to. For those of you that want to get in touch with Igor Brusel, his website is brusellawgroup.com. Brusel is B-R-U-S-I-L. 
brusalawgroup.com. Igor Brusel, embryologist turned attorney. Thank you so much for coming back on to Inside Reproductive Health. Thanks, Griffin. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.